This is exactly right. Can't fix it right away because you can't unlearn, let's say, 45 years of your shame and your association to these larger systemic issues in like a day or even a year. But to live into it means, again, you just unperfectly engage in the dialogue. And the world that pushes perfectionism, I think it's hard for us to drop down our guards to our own children and show up as vulnerable human beings. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is completely in line with what we talk about here on a regular basis. Today's show is Check Your Privilege with Maisha T. Maisha T. Hill is a mental health activist, speaker, author, podcaster, and entrepreneur passionate about the mental health awareness and empowerment for women. In 2018, after a negative experience with a friend and coworker, Maisha T had to end it in order to make room to cope with the negative impact that it had on her mental health. That's when she became more curious about white women and their relationship with privilege. And it was the beginning of her journey to identify her own internalized oppression and racism. She began her Check Your Privilege interview series during Minority Mental Health Awareness Month that year, and it was important to her that she look beyond throwaway or cancel culture to find ways that white women, in particular, were working to shift from passive allyship onto becoming action-driven co-conspirators to black and brown indigenous women of color. Maisha T. works with organizations and community groups taking white people on a self-reflective journey exploring their relationship with power, privilege, and racism. Her book, Check Your Privilege, Live Into the Work, invites readers to embark on their own anti-racism journey, knowing full well it won't look perfect. Check Your Privilege validates the collective, knowing that this vulnerable work requires all of us to lean into interdependence and imperfection. Maisha T., welcome to the show. Thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation, um, such an important conversation. And as I prepared for this conversation, something that struck me in your work, your writing, your um, podcasting, your interviews, is how, I want to say, comfortable and non-threatening you you enter this work. And I was wondering, is that something that you have to try to do and or is it just part of your way of being? Um, It's part of who I am. It's just part of the way my being, I think, just growing up in uh, an environment of care and service for all people kind of nurtured me to just have this personality. It's, It's part of me. My uh, mom would often say, you're just too nice. Like, where does that come from? (laughs) It's like, I I don't know. It's just something that I've learned and I've adapted to. So that's just who I am. 
Well, and I think, I imagine it allows you to take on this topic, which can be uh, a very uh, challenging topic for many uh, to grapple with in a way that you lead, you lead people through their journey by, well, I want to say by, by example, I mean, you're, you're, and, and let's start with by example, if, can you say a little bit about the experience which led you to make this your um, latest life's work? Absolutely. My life's work has evolved. Um, I think it was the experience with my a friend, a former friend and colleague that caused disruption in my my awareness of the impact that uh, oppression has on interracial relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really. It, it, I think what if I think a little bit clear. The conversation that actually spearheaded this fallout was a call with a group of folks who were talking about patriarchy and mental health. Mm-hmm. And what actually triggered the event was my inability to get on the call and then a series of text messages that were very harmful mm-hmm. and required like a response. It was almost like um I call it the relationship with the narcissistic and codependent. It was like a very unhealthy codependent dynamic there. I'm not a mm-hmm. therapist, but I play one for pretend mm-hmm. sometimes. You sound like one. Just kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that experience just really had me, you know, talking to friends and friends would be like, you know, this is why we're not friends with white people. You can't trust white people. Um, we have to just get rid of it. Like you'll, you'll never be, you'll, you'll never feel You'll never feel like a true black woman, like and free and liberated while you're still friends with white folks, essentially, is what I was told time and time again. And mm-hmm. I was like, I wasn't raised like that. You don't just throw people away. Like there's a way to engage with curiosity and conversations. And I really started to dig deep into the work of Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde and Toni Morrison. And it really started to open up my eyes to, you know, especially if you read All About Love by Bell Hooks, it's not about throwing people away. It's about really figuring out how to be in community. And since love is not necessarily defined and community has been so disruptive to so many people and dysregulated all of us because it's always been this power over instead of power with and interdependence. It's like, no, I'm not going to throw people away, but what I will do is interview some friends and just see what work they're doing. And I can talk about the work that I've done and we can really figure out like, what is the constant interrogation or now what I call the practice that a person must do to continue to heal their journey and their relationship, but with oppression. Mm. What were you surprised to find, if anything, when you started these conversations, like, you know, first your own self-reflection and then also with your friends, was there anything that was something that you just had not considered? Actually, yes. I I never wrestled with my own relationship with anti-Blackness. It's easy to put the lens on someone else's misfalls. Uh, and not really look at your own. And so I recognized grown because I grew up in, in Concord and had a different view of the world. Um, I carried a lot of anti-Black characteristics for most of my life. Mm-hmm. 
uh, meaning that, you know, I would choose friends that were lighter skin than darker skin or the relationships were different based on skin color, realistically, mm-hmm. um, realizing that I had an issue with class um, and classism, right? The economic status of being black in America. And, and I looked down on people. I, I'm not I can't honestly be honest and not say my struggle. Right. And it, it was mm-hmm. really based on color and class. And that's rooted in anti-blackness something that we're all taught and socialized to uphold. And so what, what, what I was able to do was recognize that my struggle was similar, not exactly the same mm-hmm. as those of white folks, where white folks struggle with anti-blackness, white folks struggle with class. Um, and I think that's the turning point of like, we, Maya Angelou says it best, we're more alike than different. Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of like that catalyst uh, that keeps propelling me forward is understanding my what I wrestle with. Someone of a different skin color can also wrestle with that same thing. And yet we hold each other accountable in practice to keep dismantling that within ourselves and within the collective world. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the whole idea of unconscious bias I have found in my own work is, um, I don't know, there's relief. Um, this is an, this is like an overstatement, but it like, it can set, can set one free in like just the awareness that this is a thing that you cannot, you can't be human and live in our culture and not have it as opposed to like, no, no, not me. No, 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 me. I'm not like that. I, you know, it's like, it's not possible, right? It's not possible right. to not have unconscious bias. No, we all have them. And I think it's, it's denial. We don't, we don't want to, you know, in order to get to awareness, it's really, you have to get to acceptance. Like, okay, I have this thing, you know, it reminds mm-hmm. me of 12 step programs where, you know, ownership is the first step. Right. And once we can take ownership and get into a deeper level of um, awareness, the awareness opens us up to that, the acceptance phase of bias. We all have them. And I think just naming and accepting that it's something that we all struggle with as humans is what actually helps a lot of folks like start to unpack their journey a little bit more. Right. Because sometimes Dr. Dan, you know, the cover, the conversation can't start with racism. It actually is a little bit easier if you start with bias and then yeah. you can work your way through there. Yes. Yes, that that makes a lot of sense to me because um, racism is such a loaded term. It has a lot of different meanings to different people. And, you know, many of us know of what I think is the most common, a common version of racism, which is I intentionally am going to mistreat you because of who you are, where you come from, the color of your skin. And then so many of us are like, well, I'm not racist. When the conversation starts with bias is how we unconsciously think about different people based on attributes, based on our socialization. Um, That's just like automatic. That leads to a discussion, which I feel, it seems less threatening to start the discussion than, than with that the racism word. Is is that your experience? Yeah, it's, it's, um, when you confront someone with the word racism, the first reaction is, well, I'm not racist. Mm-hmm. 
I I don't have a racist bone in my body. I, I have black friends. Right. And depending on who you're in conversation with, that can take you down the whole loop of microaggressions. Like the frameworks just get bigger and bigger. And yeah, for sure. Starting with bias is it, 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 it normalizes, it creates the humanity of the experience because once you can understand the biases, as you were saying, then when the race word comes, it's like, okay, I can go a little, one step further in now because I'm ready to tackle my biases head on and see how racism and bias is interconnected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and say a little about that. Say a little about how, 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 how it is connected and how, you know, as you lead people on the anti-racist journey, there is this, there's this continuum that you take them on this path. Right, right. So when we talk about bias, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because we like to bring in the science of bias and talk about something called the bias codex. And it, it kind of makes the work more engaging and, and thought provoking. So as you start to name and identify your bias, then you bring in the work of Project Implicit. And you can actually have what I've done is I have individuals take the race IAT, right, which is your preference towards skin color. Um, that one activity can, if it's led correctly, it can lead to a deeper conversation on racism. So it's kind of talking about unconscious bias and then building that, that, that muscle up to go through implicit bias because our implicit biases are connected to, to racism and we don't recognize that right away. And so building in that activity around, well, let's look at racial color preference a person, it, there's some processing that we do after that. We don't just immediately jump into racism, but it has individuals engage in like with a lot of curiosity. Well, why do I like uh, I have a preference for white skin over dark skin? And what is that asking me to look at and know? And then moving that into racism and how although race is a social construct, our biases are unconsciously upholding these constructs every single moment at mm-hmm. every single day. And it's all about our processing and our biases that if we're not actively working on them, we cannot actively really dismantle racism within us or within the world. So what is the first step you have found um, that for people who are, um, who are on this journey? Taking ownership. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can go to all the workshops and take all the classes to and, and have all the language and have great conversations with your colleagues. But if you are not ready to take ownership of your unconscious bias and how racism shows up in your personal and professional lives and, and how it trickles down to your family, um, if you can't take ownership in that, the work that's being done is really a performance. It's it's really to to be in the know, to 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 be able to sit at a conversation and say, "Well, I know about intersectionality, right?" I think the ownership piece is so important because it's one thing to know about intersectionality, but it's another thing to think about how your intersectionality impacts how you view and see the world and what you have access to versus. Um, folks from the what we call the global majority or the marginalized community, what mm-hmm. we have access to. So ownership is always the first step. But again, you can't get to ownership until your awareness moves into acceptance. So it, it's really like a, a mindfulness practice, right? As I think mm-hmm. about Thich Nhat Hanh, um, mm-hmm. may he rest in peace. It's really like, okay, I need to slow down and be mindfully aware yep. that there's something that I need to accept 
And that acceptance will allow me to take ownership and really go deeper in my journey personally and then professionally. I think the crossover is also what's what makes this journey so difficult is because a lot of us are like, well, my professional career, I have to go to these workshops. I have to hold space. I have to do this at work, but we don't think about at home. Right. And and the impacts of the work at home with our children, like the way we're socialized is often how we socialize our children. Oh yeah. You know, families didn't have conversations on race. We're probably not having them at home either. Absolutely. And that's, um, you know, so key to what, we talk about on the show with awareness as you have um, mindfully brought into the conversation is to be purposeful about how we raise our children to be healthy. And with that purpose, one needs to be aware of how we were raised and, you know, what we liked, what we didn't like, what we want to change, what we want to keep. And, um, yeah, and we generally do what was done to us, or I don't always mean done, but like parent how we were parented, um, unless yeah. we pause and really think about this. And and I have to say, you know, when you go through as a parent, we we pick as parents consciously and unconsciously what we want to grow in our kids, right? Some people are like, well, I want my mm-hmm. kids to be really kind. Others are like, I want my kids to be hardworking. I want my kids to take risks. I want my kids to be community-minded. And, um, you know, here's one. I want my kid to be an anti-racist, an active anti-racist, right? It's like something like it's something to put on the list that you have to consciously cultivate in your family. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. I think that's something that's a should be one of those priorities with families. And I think a lot of, well, how do I do it? And wh- where do I go? And what am I supposed to do? You know? Yeah, that's why we got you here. There's not a <laughs> one size fits all approach to how to do it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's all by age and it's practice. And I think it's really, you know, as a black woman in America, there was never an age where I had to think about how do I talk to my kids? Well, actually, I do think about age appropriate conversations, but like it was, mm-hmm. there was never a hesitation to how do I talk to my son about Trayvon Martin? Yeah. Right. Like there was no recipe. I think it was just that open conversation. Like, Hey, this is what's happening in America to young black men. Um, it brings up a lot of fear and anxiety for me as a black mm-hmm. mom and as my partner, as a black man. And I know you see it when you ask to do things and we tell you no, but unfortunately this is the reality of the world, right? It's it's practicing imperfect conversations that leads to a younger child asking more questions and then you just doing your absolute best to answer them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it starts at, at a young age. They say kids start recognizing um, racialized features, I believe, between three and six months. Um, it starts with the books that you read. Like we used to say, decolonize your bookshelf, right? Make <laughs> sure your books have books for kids of all ages and have all characters, black characters, brown characters, indigenous characters, and so forth, Asian American characters, and and look for books where the protagonist is not all, or the antagonist is not a a darker person of color, right? Mm -hmm. And these are some practices that we've had, you know, where Mm -hmm. we've changed up our bookshelves or we've changed our homeschool curriculum where our history is actually black history, (laughs) Um, with a little bit of what the kids have to know, you know, as part of their statewide curriculum. Um, but I'm not here to give all those answers right now, but I think it's just 
the daily intentional practice. There's so many ways you can slowly infuse this work with your families, whether it's, you know, watch a historical documentary um, together, Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. that's pretty easy to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Read books together. Um, Have hard, the hard conversations. You can role play together. Um, There's different ways, but I think the most important piece is to figure out how it works for your family. So if you have a kid who's an athlete, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, you could surround your kid with so many different in basketball, for example. You know, you can s- select a group of BIPOC basketball players that are male and female, if if that's your beliefs, and and show the color rainbow, the color spectrum of players, right? To start mm-hmm. fostering a child's curiosity of of difference and what difference looks like, and you know, encourage them to become fans of basketball players across different races and. And, and start building that muscle to be around, to be around other races. Cause I think that's something else that kids don't experience is how to be in community with kids of other races. Mm-hmm. Like what, what does that mean? And that's a practice that has to be kind of passed down where families actually need to be in community with other families of color. So that's, that's part of the practice. So it's talking about it um, in, age developmental age appropriate ways and then actually creating opportunity to experience it and i really yeah and i really like the idea of i mean the conversation around you know on the walk or at the picnic or at the dinner table about hey bias hey kids like here's what i've learned about bias you know i mean Mm because a lot of adults I mean, hopefully we, we teach our kids things earlier than we learn them ourselves in our own life, right? So, hey, this is what yeah. I've learned about bias. Like we have ways that we automatically think because of how we are raised and what we watch on TV and the culture we live in. And let's talk about what do you automatically think when you see this or hear this? And yep. let's talk about why. Perfect. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's the practice. The practice at the mm-hmm. dinner table. The practice is while watching television yesterday and like... For me, for the first time, you see Vice President Kamala Harris behind a president and you're just like, wow, what do you think about Vice President Kamala Harris behind Joe Biden? Like, That's a conversation I have to have with my mom because Mm -hmm. she's never seen it. I've never seen it. But my mom and I can have still have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's really engaging in that critical conversation with your own parents and or your own children. And, you know, I feel this is from for a for a white person, I, it takes courage. It take, I just want to acknowledge, like it takes courage because we know like mm-hmm. there's so much unconscious, um, you know, people want things to be the way they are. There's a tremendous amount for a lot of people, a tremendous amount of guilt and shame for being part of, especially in our modern day awareness, um, with yeah. Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and, you know, Trayvon and, you know, all others that um, in the news and not in the news, if there's a tremendous amount of guilt and shame, and I think many people don't know how to step into that, or as you say, live into it um, for themselves and what to even say to their kids because of the shame. Mm-hmm. One of what this takes me to is uh, Bell Hooks. Talk about Bell Hooks a lot. (laughs) One of her quotes says, uh, shame is one of the deepest tools of imperialist, capitalist, white supremacist patriarchy because shame produces trauma and trauma often produces paralysis. 
And I think this idea that these larger systems have taught us to internalize our shame to the point that we don't take a step and we don't take a move. It's what, it, it's what really paralyzes us and stops us from making that first step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of white and white passing folk, you know, we, we use that we use that quote in almost all of our live streams. And I haven't used it on the podcast quite yet, but that quote has been so helpful for the white folks that I do work with that are taking the step forward into the work because we use that as the reminder to don't fall into analysis paralysis and apathy. Take the shame and just take baby steps to move with it. Mm -hmm. Can't fix it right away because you can't unlearn, let's say, 45 years of your shame and your association to these larger systemic issues in like a day or even a year. But to live into it means, again, you just unperfectly engage in the dialogue. Don't allow yeah. the shame to leave us paralyzed. And, I, and it's hard because it takes, in the world that pushes perfectionism, I think it's hard for us to drop down our guards to our own children and show up as mm-hmm. vulnerable human beings. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't agree with you more. And that the that part of your work really gave me a sense of calm because when you when you just externalize and state this is the farthest thing from perfection and we have to step into and understand the imperfection it al- it gives permission just to kind of take a step whatever that step is it doesn't have to be a, yeah. a right step um, and it makes me think about little two nights ago, um, our oldest was over and she was working on a paper for college and she, um, in it at the very end, she said, you know, dad, this kind of, this relates to the paper. I, um, I want to mention that as a white person, I have guilt for this situation that I'm writing about. Is that okay? And I said, mm. I said, why wouldn't it be okay? And then she, you know, well, here's the class, here's the professor, here's the orange, like, you know, and it, I think it was totally representative of how so many of us think about, is it okay to even take this step to say it? And it speaks to what you're talking about with the trauma and the shame. And, and, you know, I tried not to overthink it and just say, yeah, say it. Like this shows that you are thinking about this. Absolutely. That, that, that's how you do it. You just go for it. I think we've been, you know, you often hear educators or scholars talk about these systemic issues. It's so systemic in the institutions and in us individually that we get crippled by the fear of speaking up against it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I I also think that's how we start to liberate ourselves and step into our personal powers just by, you know, say the thing. Ayanna Van Zant says to call a thing a thing. And in my culture, you grew up to just, just be direct. Just, just say what's really residing on the inside because it's a form of liberation, right, to do so. Mm-hmm. And yet it still feels shameful because, you know, depending on how you're raised, it's not polite to speak up. It's mm-hmm. rude to speak up. It's rude to take a side. Um, it's rude to argue for the side of justice. But that was a beautiful example of like, that was probably super liberating for your daughter and probably for you too, just to just do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Because I went through the whole thing in my head. Is this okay to say, you know, like she comes from me, right? So it's like Mm -hmm. the same sort of, and, uh, right. 
And to right. drop that, to drop the fear of knowing if you are trying mm-hmm. to, like if you're trying to be an open, good, honest person, and like you're saying, knowing you're going to make some mistakes and it's not going to be perfect, it's just, it's just stepping out. It's like just, just trying, trying to do your best, even if you misspeak. I mean, I know when we, I talk to people like you who are experts in the field, um, people of all colors who are expert in the field and mm-hmm. will always say, oh my gosh, I said this at one of my trainings and I had to really own that because um, it was, it was, yeah. I didn't intentionally mean it, but it, 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 it insulted somebody like we, we all are going to do that. Yeah. It's this fear of getting this work wrong, getting anything yeah. wrong. We have that fear of like, Oh, I got to do it a certain way because I was taught there's only one right way and there's not. And I think that's what makes this work so unique is, is that you'll, you actually won't know what's right or wrong until you actually do it. And once you can just make that choice to just, just do it. Like there's something liberating about stop overthinking and just take the step. Yes. Because then the, the worst that can happen is like someone says, Oh, that was a misstep. Um, and that can take you back to shame. So it's always a reminder, like the misstep is not, we can't live in the defeat of a misstep. It's the learning experience. You are so anti-perfectionism. I adore that. Oh God, yes. I adore that. <laughs> I, <laughs> It's a gift and a curse. I'll say that. Yes. Yes. I relate. And it's, um, and it's liberating to know, like, just step in, just step in, lean in, live in, as you say. I know that you've been doing work that has um, the title of lean in, but before we get to that, like live in. So tell us what, what you mean by living in to the work. Yeah. You know, when I was doing the interviews um, and really getting started with check your privilege, a lot of my colleagues were like, do the work, do the work, do the work. And I started tying the word doing into like another productivity hack, a checklist like, oh, I'm just going to do this work and I'm done with my journey. I'm, I just read a pod, listened to a podcast, check. Um, it just reminded me of like this ongoing to-do list and like how overwhelming does that feel if I'm always being told to do a thing that's already incredibly hard? So it just fell into my spirit, as my old school grandmother would say, and I'm like, we're actually not just supposed to just do it. We have to live into it. And so it really just means like it's a lifestyle. To live into this work is adapting it to our lifestyle. So we're not just reading books and listening to podcasts, which we do love you listening to our podcast, um, but we're also building relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned earlier, like, and not relationships that are causing harm to one another, but really like being curious about engaging in relationships outside of your class, outside of your gender, outside of your race, Live into that experience and really see what it teaches you because you can learn a lot from someone when you allow yourself to live openly and that can shape your awareness and acceptance of certain things. Mm -hmm. And so I I didn't want this to sound like another do this work and you'll be free, another productivity hack that upholds like performance-based metrics. Because when I hear the word do, I tie it to 
socialize performance-based metrics of success. And I was like, well, we're not getting any gold stars in this work and um, we're not arriving anywhere. But if we think about it as a daily intentional living practice um, with experiences and action items and building community, um, it really shapes and transforms the way we think about even doing the work because it means you have to live with intention mm-hmm. and you have to live yes. mindfully and you have to embody the work. So it's not just doing it. It's the embodiment mm-hmm. of the work and the whole experience of it. And I think you and I are both aligned. Um, you have referenced Thich Nhat Hanh and so many others, uh, the Dalai Lama, so many other greats. It's like, if we can live with mm-hmm. intention, man, everything gets yeah. better if we can live with intention, like all the way around, right? Like open up our awareness yeah. to, to what is and accept what is while trying to continue to grow as, as, as human beings in this constantly changing dynamic world that we are <laughs> occupying right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think just hearing you saying what is reminds me of the work of Byron Katie. Oh yes. Um, yes. And she, when she talks about, you know, staying in your own business, it, it reminds me of living into the work because it's not worrying about what your neighbors are doing and what they're living in. And it's not worrying about what God's doing, but it's really worrying about what you're doing and how you're living into your own life's experiences. I think Byron Katie's quote is more, if there's three kinds of business, yours, God's and mine's. And when I'm out of mm. my business, that's when chaos ensues or something like that. Yeah, Um, she she's powerful and uh she simplifies the work, right? She simplifies the work in terms of uh what also makes me think of boundaries, right? She's so good with that what you just said, right? Those boundaries, like what's mine? And you know, and in in the Mm -hmm. AA and the NA community, it's the same thing. Like, you know, keep your own side of the street clean, right? You can't be on other on the other side of the street. You can't be on people's other sides exactly. yeah, Yeah. Um you're, so you have several classes um, in addition to your books and your podcast. You have several classes, and um, this one just made me smile. I mean, I literally laughed out loud. I was like, I love this. It's breaking your addiction to privilege or to whiteness, right? Like, break, and speaking of NAAA, basically, like this, yeah, right, like this, and it just made me smile because I think I think you have this way. No, you have this way, Maisha T of of bringing this information again, which is very um, provoking, provocative information for many, in a way that just it's it's approachable. And um, I heard on a on a previous interview how you um, you start um, many of the classes, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say it with in my own in my own voice because it was freeing <laughs> yeah, to okay. say. Uh, my name is Dan. I am inherently racist, unconsciously biased, and actively striving to becoming anti-racist. That's it. That's it, right? And if you can start with that statement, you have just walked in the door of possibilities. That's probably why that's the most popular course I teach all the time. Um, Absolutely. And that statement has evolved. It's it's, oh, it's so beautiful. But just saying that right there, I even say it. I'm Aisha, I'm inherently racist. I'm unconsciously biased and I'm actively striving to become right. It gives mm-hmm. you permission to fail, to be fully human, to recognize your complicity in the system. 
Um, and it's freeing. Like, I feel free when I say it. Again, that's that uh, dismantle perfectionism and everything. But um, that workshop actually came in the summer of 2020, um, that, that concept of addiction and privilege. Because the reality is, is that no one wants to lean into the discomfort, like go forward and, and lean in there. We, we want to stay with what works and what works is actually what's caused these systems to be in this constant state of chaos. Um, and so when we can all admit that we are addicted to this system and yet we're actively striving to become, we're not anti-racist, we're becoming, you know, reminds me of Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, we're act- evolving along the way. Mm-hmm. It just gives a permission to just be fully human on this journey. Yeah. Yeah. What have you, uh, how would you describe the growth and transformation um, that you see with folks who are involved in your coaching and your courses? Yeah, it is absolutely beautiful. I've, I've seen, I've seen clients leave jobs. I've seen clients advocate for social change in their communities. Um, I've seen families totally shift and change the way they show up in community spaces like churches. Um, I don't even think I have the words to explain how I've seen this grow and how my my fellow co-conspirators, I in these relationships I never like to have power over, but my fellow co-conspirators, so much growth. And I think the biggest growth is when I see them, anyone say, shame is a liar. I'm doing the best I can. And I'll continue this work forever long it takes me. You know, I, I see women who grew up during the civil rights movement, who were part of the movement, helping other co-conspirators who are just joining to like ease in, like, don't feel guilty. Don't feel it's OK. Uh, the support that the community offers, because we have a community coaching and courses, the three C's. Mm-hmm. Watching the community hold each other when harmful things happen and um, watching my clients, they just feel fully alive and feel human. Yeah. Accepting where they are in their personal and professional lives. That that brings a lot of joy to me. Fully alive and fully human. Like, man, who does not mm-hmm. want that, right? And who would have thought talking about racism yeah. <laughs> could help people say things like that? You'd right. be like, what? Someone said they feel fully alive? Well, absolutely. They just took ownership of their addiction to privilege or they mm-hmm. just, you know, came to a bias workshop. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's freeing for them. Yeah, and calling it what it is. I mean, there's lots of reasons for people yeah. to like privilege, right? <laughs> like, why would why would people not like privilege? You get lots of cool things and you, get, you don't mm-hmm. get lots of things you didn't even know that are out there to not get if you've never experienced that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it's the, 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 the phrase I often think of is the psychological and emotional safety that comes with racialized privilege that oppressed groups do not have at all. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I just have to tell this, this story of a close friend of ours. Um, her, uh, close friend from college is white who married um, a black man. They have two beautiful kids who are mixed race. And 
uh, one of the sons was shopping with mom and he was probably at the time 17 or 18 and they were walking out of the, um, the department store and he was holding his bag of clothes and the, the buzzer went off and he quickly, he, um, gave the bag of clothes to his mom and said, you hold it. And she's like, why do I need to hold it? She's like, we just bought it. He's like, you don't understand mom. You need to hold this. And it was such a powerful it just really impacted me, obviously, I'm telling the story now, um, that this is something that even this mom who had raised her kids to understand the impact of their darker skin, still living it, was still not aware of how something like that could go wrong very badly just because of the inherent racism and bias. Absolutely. Yeah, that the, the those stories are so familiar. Like, again, I it just reminds me of like my son. Can I go to the for a walk? And you know, we live in this well-off neighborhood in Las Vegas. Um, it's what it's called. It's called the Hollywood of Las Vegas. Mm. Not that that matters, but <laughs> it reminds me of Lana Creek. Let mm. me just say that. Okay. Um, there's often a resistance to be like, no, you can't go outside because mm-hmm. of the fear of like what could happen if someone says he's walking down the street in the neighborhood and he doesn't belong, you know, like similar to Trayvon Martin. Right. And he gets approached. Right. It's, it's, it's when you don't live it, you're not aware of it. Right. You know, and those of us who do live the experience and share with our colleagues, it's kind of like you, Dr. Dan, like, Oh my gosh, it still happens. Yeah. I thought this was over. Like I I would never have thought that something like that would happen Mm -hmm. now, but it, it hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped. Um, no, it hasn't stopped. And there's a lot of work to do. And that's why these conversations mm-hmm. are so important. And your classes are so important. And your um, your podcasts and your book. And just putting this out there again, I just can't say this enough to everyone listening who um, I have the benefit of looking at Maisha T and her kind, her kind face. Um, it's a it's an invitation to grow and it's an invitation i mean to live to live fully and also to heal for 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 your Absolutely. own healing for your community healing and for us as a people to start healing Absolutely i think that's the birth of the new book heal your way forward it was really to help co-conspire just to understand when you look back and heal your past, it really helps repair the future generations and it really helps our children, right? When we can live that boldly and live it with them, the healing work that's required because it's, it's actually, you know, Dr. Dan, I've, I've evolved and, and I call it liberation work in 2020. Mm, yeah. <laughs> because we're liberating ourselves, because we're healing ourselves. We are actually healing forward. And, you know, because anti-racism has to encompass anti-Semitism. And it has to encompass xenophobia. Well, I can encompass those things and still work toward an active, liberated experience, liberating my life and liberating my kids as they get older by watching me do all of these conversations and podcasts and books. And mm-hmm. it's healing me forward and healing them forward and other co-conspirators who are engaged in this work. It's definitely a healing journey. Um, and, I, and I've niched it down to the liberatory work. That resonates for sure. I love that. Yeah, it's it's liberation. It's yeah. self liberation. It's community liberation. It's um, mm-hmm. 
yeah, permission, like permission to, uh, to heal and grow. Um, despite that's what it is, right. Despite the atrocities, despite the systemic issues, um, it's okay. Everyone like you, you, you have permission to be liberated and to live and to grow and to heal and to teach those of you who have children to Mm -hmm. teach your own children how to do this work at such an early stage in their lives relative to our own. Absolutely. Yes. Take your power and permission back and step into the liberation work. It's, it's not easy, but we move through it. We move through the shame and we keep Mm -hmm. doing it each and every day. Mm -hmm. And, and, and let's just say a little bit more about the shame for people to really, to really hear this, the shame and the guilt um, is part of the work. You can't feel that if right. you can't feel that if you're doing the work, right? It's a necessary component of the work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, if you're not feeling the shame and the guilt and the defensiveness, if you're not experiencing that, you're not really doing the work. You might just be testing the waters, but that's part of the process. It, that's what change and healing requires. Is it's facing ourselves and facing our wrongdoings. And a lot of us don't want to face ourselves, whether it's mm-hmm. anti-racism, whether it's child ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences. I've had those yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, stepping into myself and into my power as an adult has allowed me to take those experiences and really focus on healing and um reminding myself that actually my children are the catalyst of my healing and they've been the catalyst of my healing to heal my childhood issues. And, and so being on this healing journey is just that constant reminder. Like I, I, I fail at parenting, you know, the whole, Mm -hmm. when the pandemic first started, I don't even think we did online zoom school and I felt like crap, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that shame, I had to move with it because I'm not perfect. I'm a human and I'm a mom and we're all doing the best we can. Yes. Well, this is uh, being a mom and your experience with your children leads us right into the parent footprint moment question. So here we go. Maisha T, tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, even an awareness of your own parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and those you love. Um, well, my son was, my oldest son is 16 now. So when he was three, I started noticing, you know, he's not developing quite right. Wasn't walking, wasn't talking. Um, and a lot of the doctors was like, oh, he's fine. He'll get over it. You know, he's just, you know, slowly developing. Uh, he got to kindergarten and the teacher said, you ever heard of sensory processing disorder? And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and that took me down the whole spiral because I'm a person who once I hear something, I just research for hours. I watched the Temple Grandin movie and I said, my son has autism. I knew it at three years old. I just didn't have the language for it for him. And um, I fought for a long time to get the accurate diagnosis. And when he was eight years old, after years of fighting for the right diagnosis, my son got diagnosed with autism. And it was during that process that And my mother was there with me at that time. And she was like, this was you. You've grown up as an undiagnosed autistic child because I didn't know. 
And it was in that moment that I recognized and realized I spent a majority of from my time that my son was five until now learning how to advocate for myself and other families to know about neurodivergence and disabilities and how we can advocate for social change. And it was in that moment that diagnosis was that I knew I had a voice for advocacy and transformation. And um, after that, I got certified um, through, I believe it's a program through Children's Hospital of Oakland to be a parent advocate for families with special needs, um, to help families get IEP support. And the first system that I ever really fully um, stood up for was the educational industrial complex. That's what I call it, <laughs> or the the education system. Um, when I took the Oakland Unified School District to court for due process for failing to yeah. support yeah. my son's IEP. And so it was that moment of finally getting the right diagnosis and finally getting all my kids the supports that they needed that I knew that I had a voice and a fight in me that could actually lead to sustainable change and help others on their journey as well. That was my parenting moment. My Aisha T could tell everyone because my mouth is like dry. I'm speechless of your. <laughs> You're just uh, like yeah. I'm <laughs> just staring. <laughs> I that that your mom said this was you, and that you yeah. were someone that has lived with autism without a without a you know a label or a um a, a diagnosis. A diagnosis. They, they just said. They were just like, you're just shy. You were just quiet. We didn't know. And I finally said, you guys know, I used to hear words and I, my expressive communication delay. I didn't fully have conversations till I was 12 years old. And when I started talking, my family was like, you talk. That is unreal. That is, that is unreal. Yeah. I, yeah. I have to ask. I used to grunt and yeah. point fingers. Like all the signs were there. Wow. So do you still identify as a person on the spectrum at this phase of your life? I do. I do. But you know, the world we live in is, well, what's your diagnosis? And I'm like, right. I, I haven't really finished testing, but I do identify as a neurodivergent person. I mean, I do tell that story because people are like, what do you mean you didn't talk? You can't stop talking. What's going on? Um, I think I found my voice for the oh. movement and what I'm supposed to be doing. Yes. So that's yes. What. And even at 12, I was a fighter for people. I was hanging out with the kids with developmentally disabled. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was the, you know, the, the boys would come and tease the girls. And I was the girl that would be like, stop teasing us. We're women and we're strong. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Wow. I am. I'm catching up here. My brain is catching up here. So. Okay. Yeah. So neurodiverse. So um, I am very passionate about neurodivergence. I uh, I live it. Our family lives it. Um, that's who we focus on at our center, um, and um, very much involved with the neurodiversity movement. And so, leads me to ask you, because we all know that people with neurodiversity have different brains designed to do different things with different superpowers. What? How would you say your neurodiversity has allowed you to? create and accomplish and lean and live in to the work you do? I think it's the gift that I have. Like if 
I could literally write something down, an idea, and execute it within six months, right? And that's my superpower is vision and execution. And that's part of neurodivergence because not everyone can vision and execute. And then the, the, the second piece I would add is strategy. So a lot of us who are neurodivergent have the gift of vision, execution, and strategy, all of them or just one or two of them. And I think that's just it's inherent and it just allows me to push forward, you know, mm. like I knew that I would, there would be a book, a podcast and courses. I just mm. knew that from, it's just an internal knowing that's that neurodivergence. You just yeah. have this intuitive no, and then you act on it. And I think that's what is my catalyst of this work is this neurodivergence gift to, to see, I literally can see this a systemic issue before I, even write like a report about it and Mm -hmm. I can name it clearly and then execute a strategy. (laughs) So, so so folks and can, can work through it and work on it. And that's, I would, I would attribute that to my neurodivergence. That is awesome. That is so awesome. I did know that you were raising, um, neurodiverse children. I, um, Mm -hmm. would never have anticipated your own personal story in this, which is also for everyone out there raising, um, neurodiverse kids. And all of us who raise neurodiverse kids have plenty of worries and run into systemic issues and education issues and social issues. And this Mm -hmm. is, uh, Maisha T is a, uh, is a beacon for all of us. Like Maisha T is one yes. of these people grown up, right? So it's like we have to look at the long right. haul for our kids. <laughs> we have to look at that long haul. Yeah. Yeah. And I and it's really really interesting because I when I was in therapy when I was pregnant with my daughter, a therapist had me do a I think it's a genogram. It's like a family tree. Mm-hmm. And had me label like all the diagnoses or issues that I knew that was in my on my family and from that moment, he's like, you know, it starts with you. You get to change it. And so from the moment my kids were born, I always have early intervention services and getting the proper diagnoses because that's part of healing forward. I, yeah. I knew there was something with me. I just didn't have the words. But to know that from my son was the catalyst to make sure that we could all heal forward together awesome. as a family. Awesome. You literally didn't have the words till you were 12. <laughs> like you, yeah, literally. They literally. were just in my head. And yeah. they said I was just selectively mute and shy. Well, my yeah. mom learned the word selectively mute, you know, a few yeah. years ago. But Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Maisha T, um, thank you for what you're doing, um, for, uh, for uh, your work, um, how your work has impacted me, how this conversation has impacted me, and I know our community um, tell, tell everyone where they find you, um, and all that you're doing. Absolutely. You can find me on the website, checkyourprivilege.co, checkyourprivilege.co. Um, you can listen to the podcast, check your privilege via snippet.fm. They're podcasts in 20 minutes or less. So it's a 20 minute bite-sized conversation on issues around, uh, race and, uh, justice, uh, you could also hang out with me on social media, Instagram and Twitter at Check Your Privilege. Definitely, definitely do that, everyone. Um, Maisha T, thank you so much for uh, this conversation and for uh, bringing yourself to us in the way that you have today. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. You guys heard it. 
You heard what Maisha T says, live in, lean in, live up, learn up, let's grow up, right? Like, let's do this and let's not be afraid. Let's, let's work through the shame. Let's work through the guilt and um, give ourselves the opportunity to live fully by going on an anti-racist journey our own in a non-perfectionist way and raising our children and all those you care about um, to be the same. Let's model that for them. And you know what? That leads us into that saying, try to be that person you want your child to become. Thank you for your five-star reviews, for being a part of our community and for sharing these episodes with people you know who will receive impact And as always, ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself every day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.